I'm glad after a couple of years of me telling you that you finally figured it out. I'll show you the email that I sent you like three years ago. I'll give you 10 bucks if you can do that. I bet you I can. Hey guys, you know I've been trying to locate a machine monitoring system that is easy to install with minimal onboarding, right? I have to tell you, Amper Technologies reached out to me. Akshat, their founder, has been on the show before. He sent me two units to install on my CNC's under their 30-day pilot program. It's been nothing but easy peasy. Ryan snapped them on. We waited a few days to validate and collect the data, and away we go. Check them out at amper.xyz and look under products for their pilot program. Bam. Welcome to Making Chips. We believe that manufacturing is challenging, but if you are connected to a community of leaders, you can elevate your skills, solve your problems, and grow your business. I'm your host, Jason Zenger, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jim Carr. Hey, bud. How you doing, Jim? I'm good. How are you? Good. Yeah. So, Jim, I bought Zengers from my dad in 2019, right before the oh, pandemic. Oh, you did? Yes. Did. As a matter of fact, yeah, you did. Exactly. Um, Steve said no mas. Steve said no mas, and now Steve's back, you know, looking for a job. So, uh, but that's a whole other story. But when are you going to, you know, sell your shop to, to your son? <laughs> well, first of all, Ryan's only 29. Okay. So he's got he's to learn a little bit more. How first. old were you when your dad sold you the shop? Well, I was 43. Yeah. Was yeah. it, were you ready? Yeah, I was. I've been would, running would, the company. Would you have been ready to prior to that? At twenty nine, no. Okay, so he's got a lot of maturity to to gain, right? Sure. He needs his business acumen has to be in, increased a little bit more, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, not to say that he couldn't do it. I don't want to lay that on him right now. Plus, that's a multiple year process. Oh, it is. You have to go through a process that takes years to bring somebody up to that point where they can understand how to run a shop by themselves or run any business by themselves that, you know, employs a team of people. Exactly. I think what we need to do right now immediately, and I've mentioned this to my attorney, is just get a buy-sell agreement in place because, God forbid... Yeah, you get hit by a bus or something. If I get hit by a bus, Ryan would not be happy if Patrick got a third of car machine. Yeah, you know what would be interesting? If you got hit by a bus, Jim, the way it goes right now, I would actually hire a camera crew to come over to your shop to watch your wife... Um, <laughs> order your three kids around to run a shop because <laughs> that would make for good TV. Yeah, it would. It would definitely make for good TV because, yeah. I don't think Ryan's going to like to hear that, but that would be good. Yeah. Not that I don't want you to get hit by a bus. No, I, I, I don't that. want that to happen just not. so that we can have a good TV show. Yeah. No, I'm not going to get hit by a bus. Good. Yeah. You be safe. Yes. We need you, you for a few more years. Yes. Just a, just a couple more. So today we're actually going to be talking about selling your machine shop because, I mean, this is a very relevant topic right now. There's a lot of people that are looking to retire and looking to sell their shops. And as a matter of fact, I'm actually thinking to myself, you know, I have a son who is really just has that programming, mathematics, likes to make things, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I really think that he is just primed for, you know, being an entrepreneurial machine shop owner in the future. And I I would love to be able to find a shop for him to buy or a shop for me to buy to pass along to him at a later time. I think there's a lot of people buying shops because I'm getting calls all the time from these mergers and acquisitions. Companies. Oh, they want to buy your shop? 
Oh, I, the, I, get, I get those. I get them all the time. I get them all the time, too. That's, yeah. why, that's why I don't answer my phone. I know. That's part of it. I agree. <laughs> delete, I delete, agree. delete. They get a little sneaky saying, you know, that they just need to talk to me about something, but I know that's what they're talking oh, about. Oh, totally, totally. And I'm not ready. Not even close. Yep, I'm not either. So, I'm not even close either. I'm, I'm on the buy side. Yeah. You know, I'm looking to buy just like, you know, and this is the, I think, the greatest time for somebody that is on the buy side to be looking at buying a machine shop. And whether you want to, you know, merge that company into yours, you're participating in a roll-up, whatever it is, I think now is a great time to be looking at shops to buy. So that's that's what we're going to be um, talking about that. And I think for uh, the business owners that are looking to retire and they want to sell their shops, now is the right time to start planning that out. And I think that, you know, even if um, you're not looking to do that for several years, um, it's it's time to start thinking about it. And we have on the show today, one of Making Chips BFFs. Do you know what that acronym stands for? Best friend forever. forever. Yeah. yeah. One of the best friends forever. Yes. Chips, Paul Van Aww, Meter. That's so sweet. I know. I'm, I'm glad you called him a BFF. Hi, Paul. How you doing? Hey, guys. Hey, Paul. That's so sweet of you. We're, so we're going to bring Paul into no, this conversation, <laughs> and we're going to talk about selling your machine shop, because Paul actually has experience selling his machine shops. But before we go there, I have some manufacturing news. You do. I see that. So this is from a local news source, and it talks about the Ozarks Technical Community College offering a two-week manufacturing boot camp this summer. And I just thought that this was interesting because I've got young kids and, you know, I get my kids involved in summer camps and stuff like that. Like, you know, one of my sons is doing a swimming camp, another one's doing a baseball camp and all that kind of stuff. And this, you know, this technical community college, knowing that there is a skills gap, is doing a manufacturing boot camp. Where is this Ozark technology? Uh, I assume the Ozarks, that would be Missouri. Yeah. Um, It says that students will pay nothing to attend the boot camp, and they have financial grants available to help with living expenses. So they're bringing in people that want to get involved in the manufacturing industry because we need more people to kind of close the skills gap. But it says the boot camps are available to anyone age 18 or older interested in working in the field. And according to the Ozarks Technical Community College, students in the boot camp will gain basic manufacturing skills, including safety in manufacturing. Uh, introduction to manufacturing, including product lifestyles, materials, assembly, and processes, blueprint reading, inspection, quality basics, and introduction to mechatronics, including additive manufacturing and robotics, all in a two-week period. That's pretty cool. I mean, that they're doing that. I mean, this is very in-depth, and they had mentioned that they have 20 people that are going to be part of each two-week period. So that's 40 people total, not a ton, but... Here's what I want to know. I want to know what the success rate is on these boot camps. I want to know that if 30 people enrolled in it, I want to see some metrics because I've heard about these before. I want to know about the success rate of them. Maybe we should get somebody in from one of these places to talk about. I think it would be about. interesting to hear how do you put one of these boot camps together? How do you draw people into here? Uh, I'm not yeah, going to do it. I certainly don't have the time. Yeah, no, I agree. But I mean, I think that there's a lot of technical colleges out there that could put something like this together in order to draw people in. I mean, you think about the number of um, kids that maybe are not going to go to college. This might be a good alternative for them to getting their foot in the door at a manufacturing company. If anybody does have any information on this or you're involved in these boot camps and because Jim wants to know, it's all about data, right? We report on data. We talk about collecting data. We talk analyzing data. I want to know what the data says. It'd be interesting to hear. I think that every technical college out there involved in manufacturing training should do a boot camp during the summer. Let's try to get that message out. What's new at Car Machine? 
Well, there's a lot new, but I'll try and pick out one or two things. But, um, you know, of course, our move is coming up. We just pushed out our move-in date two weeks. I told because, you. Not because of the GC. The building will be ready. We are so busy right now that we just want to keep the disruption at a minimum. We felt that 7-7 was a little too early, so now we're going to 721 as our move, new move-in date. But we're super, super excited. I don't know if you follow me on LinkedIn, but you know I'm posting like every other day about how excited we are and giving a little teaser videos about uh, the move and, who's, and who's the new visit. producing those videos for you? Who do you think? Making chips? I am a making chips marketing nice. client. New website to come out by the end of June. Nice. And then uh, hopefully we'll have some video content to sh actually show off the new facility I once. My mind's always thinking about that kind of stuff. So Why don't we get into it? So, Paul, you sold your shop, Pro CNC, in what year? 2014. In 2014. So that would make you 48. Did that happen quickly, or did you take several years in order to prepare yourself for that sale? It definitely took a while. I wouldn't say several years, but in hindsight, we were actually preparing our company for sale for many years before, just not the actual process. So all the partners were on board with that? With selling. Yes. And yes. there was four? Uh, at the end, there were three, okay. essentially. Okay. Um, yeah, we started hiring people to replace ourselves, so we weren't actually working on the business or in the business anymore. But the actual process itself, where we hired an M&A company to take us to market, that was about a year process. Right. I would imagine. An M&A gym is mergers and Mergers acquisitions. and acquisitions, yeah. yes. I got that. I do. I got it. When was ProCNC founded, Paul? I'm trying to get some... 97. 97. Okay, so, so you were at it for quite a while. 17 years. Yeah. yeah. And you, I were, was, you were a mature company. Yes. Yes. Yeah, weren't just a startup. Okay. But, so I was 23, I think, when we started, when I oh, founded is that right? ProCNC, straight out of college. Yeah, that's great. And I remember you, you told that story during episode 98 of Making Chips, and uh, it is a great story. So if anybody wants to go back and listen to that, um, it, it's a great episode. So, Paul, why is this such a relevant topic right now? Why should we be talking about selling your machine shop? Well, it kind of came on my radar for a few reasons. Um, you know, we have clients that are, that are going to be going through that process and have started talking to us about it. Uh, and then just even like in Modern Machine Shop Magazine, there's just been a lot of articles. Even I think the May issue or April was kind of a special issue on sort of business transitions. Okay. Right? So there's just... Every baby boomer, the very youngest of all the baby boomer generation, will be 65 in 20, by 2030. So just in the next 2030, next, next uh, you know, sort of nine years or so. And of the approximately 18,000 machine shops, at least in America, the majority of those are owned by baby boomers. So there's a, you know, very likely the vast majority of those will have some kind of transition of ownership within the next 10 to 15 years. Is it an opportunity for both parties or is it? Absolutely. It's always an opportunity yeah. for both parties. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. I mean, because like even if you look at, okay, so Jim, if you're going to retire in 15 years, I mean, that's an opportunity for you. And, you know, I would presume an opportunity for Ryan as well. But it's a matter of, you know, putting this together properly. I mean, like one of the things that my dad and I always talked about, and this was, you know, I give credit to my dad for this, is, you know, he wanted to make sure that he set me up for success. And I wanted to make sure that I set him up for, you know, reaping the rewards of the company that he, you know, helped build and, you know, the value that he had helped create um, while he owned the company. Selling a business is one of the most significant financial impacts to anyone in their whole lifetime. And especially 
most of these shops, you know, these are, it's the baby of these shop owners. You know, they've been working at it for 10, 20, 30, 40 years or more in some cases. And uh, it's a pretty huge event to, to leave that, to have it pass to key employees, next generation, or a third party. And some shops will also, unfortunately, just kind of close their doors and sell off their assets. That, that will happen to it. Yeah, some, some will not even see that selling their business is a viable option. It is the reality, but there are things that people can do to change that, to make it more feasible. I think the statistic is that something like 80% of businesses that get listed for sale never actually do sell, and less than 80, 80%. 80%. And that's not just manufacturing, but that's across the board. And there's a lot of, you know, small, you know, solopreneur um, businesses that, that that would include. But I mean, probably more businesses just have asset sales than you would realize. Like even in the manufacturing industry, you know, you see, you know, asset sales of machine tools. And, you know, sometimes those are companies that um, just decide, you know, it's easier for me just to lock the door and sell the assets, sell the used machine tools that I have than, than anything else and just take, collect that cash and move on. And it could be for health reasons or some other reason too that they do. That'll likely be a fraction of what the company could be worth. Exactly. So none of the original partners from pro CNC wanted to stay in the business or was it part of the contractual agreement that if one wanted to go? No, we were all excited to move over and do pro shop. So there was no questions at not all. A, not even one. So they saw that, another opportunity. And that could be the scenario for, you know, a lot of baby booners selling their businesses. They see a better opportunity in retirement or a better opportunity in doing something else than they, they see in their shop. And, you know, just a matter of, you know, how do you prepare yourself ahead of time? Do you see this as being a big change in the manufacturing industry in general? Not just machine shops, but all companies are... Well, there's a huge percentage of manufacturing companies in general that are owned by folks that are getting on in the years, right? They eventually do want to retire. They want to enjoy the fruits of their hard work into their retirement years. There's different types of buyers out there. So there's a shop like yourself, Jim, where you could buy another machine shop that could be um, either complementary or just do exactly the same thing that, that you do. And you intimately know manufacturing and it's easy for you to plug them into there. A lot of times you could just buy their book of business and just start machining their parts on your machine. So that's, but that would um, be a strategic partnership. That would be a strategic, yeah, strategic buyer. Yeah. Um, and then you've also got like, you know, the private equity, which a lot of times that's what you're referring to here where, you know, you, you hire a mergers and acquisitions firm. Yeah. So an M&A firm, could find strategic or financial buyers, right? Buyers that just want the cash flow from the business or buyers that are strategic. And usually a strategic buyer will, will pay more. There's more value there because they can see that, you know, one plus one is more than two. But, you know, there's buyers of all kinds out there. You know, there's a lot of roll-ups out there. So there's holding companies that specialize just in manufacturing. And I've seen them even roll up some of our clients that our manufacturers, where they own, let's just say, 30 different manufacturing companies, and that's literally all the parent company does is they just buy up um, other manufacturing firms. And they do have, they have a certain methodology that they put into place. So like, for example, they might have, you know, certain like lean methodologies or, um, you know, certifications where they would come and they buy a company like yours, Jim, and they, they'd put their methods into place and make your company better. You'd mentioned before, Paul, that, you know, like these strategic buyers typically pay a little bit more. Why is that? There's something about the acquisition that they, that helps them uh, either in their own business or they can cross sell to complement their existing business. The one plus one is more than two. 
if you have maybe, you, you know, you're AS9100, you're getting into the space business, you're going to get CMMC, you know, maybe a, another shop that might be larger than yours, but doesn't have those credentials yet, can see that by buying your shop and those connections that they have, that you have with your customers, that gets their foot in the door and they can help grow their shop. An example, the company that bought our shop was a medical device manufacturer from Ireland. They saw some weakness in the medical device industry worldwide, and they wanted to diversify out of exclusively medical, get into aerospace. So they bought ProCNC in order to get their foot in the door in aerospace. They invested more, they bought more machines, they grew the company. When we sold it, we had about 75 employees. They grew it up to about 100. And obviously, they're down a bit with COVID, but um, overall, you know, it's, it's on a positive trend for sure. Do you think that's a mistake on the side of the strategic buyer to pay, you know, like over Never. premium, I guess? I mean, this is partly what I want to talk about today is about just the valuation and how that's determined. And because the, the other unfortunate statistic is when a business does sell less than half the time, does it actually sell for what the owner wants to get out of it? Well, usually the owner has an inflated view of what, what the company is worth. Because this is going to be such a sort of a sea change in the industry, I want to get the word out to, to shop owners about you got to be realistic about this. You got to start looking at what are the things that feed into that multiple, you know, talking about the, what the valuation is. There's lots of formulas for, you know, how businesses typically sell and, and, and they're valued. But that multiple of earnings or profit is can be quite variable. Some tangible and some intangible variables that can really make a big difference in what a company is worth. So I'm not a pro shop user. No, you're not. They're a great sponsor of ours. And we hear a lot about pro shop from you, Jim. And one thing that's kind of surprising to me in, in a really good way for them is as I travel, I spend about a third of my life on the road. Yeah. As I travel, this year I've had like three or four different companies yeah. that are all either using ProShop and have amazing things to say about really? it. Really? Or they're like one time I walked in and they were telling me, yeah, that's ProShop on the screen, but we're just like analyzing which ERP we were going to switch to. They're blowing to. up, Nick. I mean, seriously. I know. I mean, just from talking to Paul, he's a busy man and you're just hearing about him everywhere. I was like, look, I don't use ProShop, but everyone I know who does absolutely loves it. So, But in all seriousness, you're going into these shops across America yeah. and you see it on their yeah. screen and you're like, oh my God. Yeah. This- I've seen that before. And I'm like, is that ProShop? They're like, yeah. yeah. And one of them was just a, right on the fence about to pull the trigger. You know, maybe Paul should run for president in 2024. (laughs) He would have my vote, man. So go to ProShopERP.com for more information. Yep. How does a shop owner look at their business and say, okay, what is this company worth? And how can I possibly set myself up for success to sell it at a higher price in the future? I think the first question to ask is, could I go on an extended vacation today and have my shop work just as well without me here? What would you say to that, Jim? Could you leave for a month or two? I wouldn't want to. I could not be away without checking in because I don't have people in those roles. I don't, I don't have defined roles. I don't have people that can do all the estimating. I mean, so that, as Paul's kind of leading you into, that actually determines the value of your company because you're so intertwined into the day-to-day business without a replacement. It also devaluates your company. And that can work to your advantage too. As the buyer? If you're trying to pass it to a family member, you want to devaluate the business 
to the family member. No, we're right? not. We're not talking. We're not talking about taxes right now. We're talking about selling to like an outside buyer here. So, like in the terms of selling to an outside buyer, they would see that as a major detriment to the value of your company because the company could not persist for a prolonged period of time without you. Yeah. So if your plan, as is likely to to have Ryan take over the business, at some point you're going to teach him to do estimating, or you're going to hire someone else, and you're going to train them to do that, right. and you'll you'll transition into that into that new reality, right? Which is great, and it's fine. And, and that's I think the a only lot of that's the only thing left. I need to do, quite frankly. Yeah. From just what I've seen a little bit from the outside, you know, you've done a great job of getting yourself off the shop floor, right? You no longer program and make parts, right? Years. You're working on the business a lot of the time. A lot. You're doing better than many, but that first question of, can I go on a long vacation and have the business be okay? Because if you can't, you're going to be limited to buyers that want to be owner operators. They want to come in, they, they, want, need to a take, they want to fill your shoes. Yep. And you're going to preclude the ability for an investment company, a PVP firm, or even a strategic buyer that doesn't want to run your business. They just want to have your business continue without you and you know leverage the, the synergies that they might have. But it's a pretty risky proposition if they know that when you leave, the main estimator, the main key person is gone and they'll need to backfill that. That backfill is, that's a lot of risk. That's a lot of risk. So therefore, they're not willing to pay as much. Right. And I think probably one of the, uh, the first steps, somebody that's in that position, like such as yourself, Jim, would be plan a month vacation. You know, Absolutely. like literally, even if it's like a year out or two years out, mm-hmm. say, I'm going to go to California. California, Napa Europe, Valley. Asia, wherever. I'm going to go somewhere for a month and I'm not going to call into the shop. And then, like we've talked about on other episodes of different things, such as like CMMC and other certifications, how do I put my plan together to get to that point where I can take that vacation without calling into the shop? That's probably the first place to start is plan that vacation, plan it for you know a year from now or whatever it is, and then start putting the pieces into place to get there. Yeah. And let me just share a little bit of the process we went through. So we hired this firm. They came in, did a bunch of research, asked us for all sorts of information, like very in-depth, very intrusive. From that, they put together a book. It was literally probably a 50, 60, 80-page book about us. Oh, it wasn't the valuation. It was a book about you? About the company, including the valuation, all the financials, really everything. Did you have to do three different valuations, fair market value? I don't remember that okay. detail. That was a few years ago now. There, there's a big difference between selling your company to like a family member, closely held, and selling it to the outside. When you're selling it to the outside, you can sell it for whatever you want to. When you're selling it to like a family member, that's where you have the reason you're talking about those different valuations is because you have tax implications that exactly. people, the government doesn't want to let you skirt those tax obligations that you have. So after that book was made, they turned that into an anonymous one pager, just the very highlight points, you know, West Coast machine shop, aerospace, you know, 75 employees, 30 machines, just bullet points. And then they send it out to, I think, hundreds or thousands of people that are sort of in these lists of companies that are looking to buy. The people that are interested in talking further, they sign a non-disclosure, and then they get the book. They get the book. They get the book that discloses who we are, all the specifics, all the details. And uh, from there, typically a smaller number, you know, that get the book say, yeah, I'm actually interested in talking further. And they issue typically a letter of intent. You know, based on what I see in this book, I'm willing to pay X amount of dollars for this business. Otherwise known as an LOI. 
LOI. Yeah, another acronym. Sales of my buildings. A lot of LOIs. There's almost guaranteed to be some some actual on-site visits and discussions between the owners and the the the, the acquirers. What you really want to have happen, and this is why in using an M&A company is advisable, is that you really want to have multiple buyers all interested at the same time and start a bidding war for your company. It's just mm-hmm. like real estate. Just like selling a house. Just like, yeah. just like selling a house. Yeah. Yep. Now, smaller businesses, really small, you know, like under a million in revenue, they're probably just going to be bought and sold by like a local business broker. That- or not even. I've bought, um, so far I've bought four companies and they were all based on just me cultivating relationships through industry events and getting to know those people. And, you know, with the last one, just going to them and saying, hey, are you looking to retire soon? And I know that you have children because I got to know their family or just kind of talking through casual conversations. I know your children are interested in the business. Can we have a discussion about me buying your business? But had there been a, a bidding war, you would have paid more. I wouldn't have bought it. You wouldn't have bought it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I had a, you know, a, well, I had a threshold <laughs> that I could afford as a 40 year old, sure. you know what I mean? And a maximum out that a bank would give me to borrow. Of course, um, of course. And, and I just, I wouldn't have had the opportunity. And sometimes things just fall into place. You know what I mean? You're given a good deal because that person is looking to exit the business as quickly as possible. Well, I would think to buy a distributorship is probably a little bit easier than to buy an active manufacturing company where there's a lot, I feel like there's a lot more things involved in a manufacturing company. Have you ever run a distributorship? No. Have you ever run a machine shop? No, okay. but I would never make that claim. Well, no. But, well, I'm just, <laughs> no, I'm just, I'm just, I'm thinking no, about it's, it. It's because any business out there is, is, is probably a lot more complex than what you probably imagine. I would imagine, yes. Yeah. But, you know, yeah. we do make flight critical parts that go on, you know, rockets and, you know. And, I, and I'm like, I help flight critical yeah. and other, yeah. you know, critical manufacturers. Yeah, just interesting. Yeah. That's why, you know, like as you're going into a business that you don't understand, you probably need to use a little bit of caution before you buy that company. 100%. As much as I'd love to own a restaurant, I know that would be not a good thing for me to do. Because first of all, I don't want to work into the night. Second of all, I'd probably be an alcoholic because you know the booze is right in front of you all the time, right? So, but anyway, um, interesting, interesting, interesting. Yeah, we I had a couple of stories uh, of customers of ours that bought shops in the last few years. Um, one was a very small shop. Uh, actually, it's a great story. Um, shop out of. Uh, out of Colorado called Focused on Machining, Justin Quinn. He's oh, a I know him. I've talked to him on the phone. Yeah, he's oh, a great guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was actually in banking. He yeah. got really interested in 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 manufacturing. Um, he actually, I think, he told me he he looked at like four or five shops before he found this one that he wanted to buy. Um, and uh, you know, he because he was in banking, he understood the financial side. You know, bought the business and then has done an incredible job of growing it ever since. Uh, a really another interesting one. Jason, you know Mike Payne yeah, of from, from his shop. Yep, um, he's a client. He's deeply involved or was deeply involved in buying and selling of businesses for many years. He was in the sort of M&A space and private equity space. And he was trying to sell a shop that uh, the owner was interested in selling. But she wasn't all that interested in, in doing all the work to make her business really attractive for sale. Mm-hmm. She was just tired of it, ready to be done. So they tried for several years to sell that shop and could not, mm-hmm. um, had deals fall through. And then he decided. Pro- most likely because she really 
didn't want to sell it. You know what I mean? Or she wanted or, to get out of it. Right. She, she didn't but, want to but, do the but work. But she probably, yeah, didn't want to do the work or the valuation wasn't what she expected. And there goes to that false expectation. Well, I think, yeah. And then a lot of the deals fall apart in due diligence, right? right? Which is where a lot of deals fall apart. So Mike eventually decided he was just going to buy this shop himself, right? He'd been intimately involved with it for a few years. He knew it was it was actually a good business. He was attracted to manufacturing. Yeah. yeah, in the core, it was a good, solid business. But he bought it for way less than she originally wanted to sell it for and has done a great job in growing that business ever since. And that company just bought another, another machine yes. shop. Funny story about this. And this is just going back to what can people do to make their companies more saleable? So besides answering the question, can I go on vacation for a month or two? There's a lot of other things that you can do to help improve the valuation. And, and just, just one tiny example, when you bought Hill Manufacturing, they didn't have a good consolidated list of things like as simple as their measuring instruments, right? They, they have, didn't have know, all their measuring equipment in their ERP system? Nope. Oh. So, they were not on Pro Shop prior <laughs> to him buying them. You need to have some kind of gauge documentation to even be ISO 9001. Well, I mean, prior to him buying it, they, yeah, prior to, they, they, they just didn't have that focus. So when he was going through the due diligence, he said they put about 50 grand valuation on all the ancillary inspection equipment. Then they got ProShop. They put it all into ProShop. It's on, now on a schedule, recalibration, all that. When they went to buy the new business just recently, mm-hmm. they had to sort of go through some of the financing for the money of the new business. Because all that same exact equipment was now in Pro Shop and easily itemizable, it was valued at $150,000. Wow. So just by putting it on a spreadsheet, basically, or mm-hmm. in a database, that equipment was worth three times more than it wow. was before. Interesting. Wow, that's great. So just a tiny little example. And that's of, just one small thing. I mean, imagine all thing. the other assets that the company has that whether they're poorly documented, um, it could really affect the valuation of the company. I'm glad you mentioned that because that really is the key other next part is just having your business really well documented with solid business processes, repeatable. You have people in those roles executing on those positions, on those business processes, and it's not tied up in the head of the owner that would be a big risk when that person leaves. Yeah, which you've probably got all of those factors already figured out because you're on ProShop. I don't know what, what to what extent, but I would say a lot of everything is documented. ProShop is where we store nearly everything. There's a couple of great books that you know people should definitely read. They're easy. They're sort of novel, sort of written as novels. The first one I think I talked about in a prior episode, and that's the e-myth. That's the whole idea of building your business as if you were going to franchise it, right, even if you never do. So that's a great one to start with. And then Built to Sell is another great book. Very similar in its alignment of you have to have repeatable business processes and a system that a company can understand about what they're going to do with it when they buy your business. I've, I've read the E-Myth. I've heard about Built to Sell. You would enjoy the E-Myth, Jim. It was kind of like the precursor to EOS. I know I've heard of it before, for sure, probably from you, Paul. It's a good one. So for those of us that are not looking to sell our business, but are actually looking to buy, how do we make sure that we're getting a fair valuation or that we can you know, maximize the value of the company on the low side? What should we be looking for? What should we be doing? Everyone that's on the buy or sell side of a transaction should have both financial and legal advisors, right? And they're going to help you determine what's fair, what's reasonable for what you want to buy. If you're in one of those situations where you're buying from someone that uh, 
doesn't have an M&A company representing them and maybe they just they don't need to get a huge amount out of it. They just want to have it go under good hands and get some money. That's the most likely scenario where you're going to get a company for a good deal. Somebody that's in maybe like a rush to get out. Yeah, maybe a rush or maybe they just they, they don't, don't want to go they don't through wanna, the process. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've bought, like I said, I've bought several companies and all those companies, I never got it on my side. I never got involved with an M&A expert and their side, they never got involved with an M&A expert either. And a lot of deals happen that way. And that's that's perfectly I fine. would say, that, yeah, there's probably, I don't, I don't know the statistics, but I would say there's a good amount of um, sales. I don't want to say the majority because I don't know that, um, but there's a, a, a large um, percentage of sales that happen without an M&A advisor um, getting involved. And you could just just by understanding basic financial statements, you can make some you can make some good assessments on the value of a company. But you wouldn't buy a hundred million dollar company without. Hit. Well, I don't have the money for a hundred million dollar company, but no, you're right, Jim. Like once you get to a certain threshold, you need to have uh, you know professional involved. The companies that you've acquired have probably been worth what less than some less than a million, and um, some more than a million. So I mean, like Zengers is worth more than a million. Um, Black no, 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 I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the last few companies that you acquired. So I've bought four companies. Our first acquisition, Crabtree Industrial, we bought select assets because they were distressed. And then we bought another company called Angle. We bought select assets of them because they were also distressed. But then we bought another company called Holsinger, um, which was not distressed. There was a clean sale. And then we bought Black and that was not distressed either. And then, of course, I bought Zengers. So, you know, I've bought several companies over the, over the years. Some were distressed and some were not. That's a different type of buy. And again, that happens because I built personal relationships with those people by going to industry events, say IMTS, you know, or whatever else that it might be, and just develop relationships over years of time. And I was able to kind of strike when the iron was hot, I guess you would say. The sort of takeaway that I want to communicate is that uh, there are definitely things that shop owners can do if they have a few years, if they have, you know, five years or so or more, and they do think they want to sell it because they don't have family members that really want to take the business over, there's things that they can do to educate themselves now to start putting things in place to dramatically improve the valuation of their business. I'm sure. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And that's the message is like prepare now. And that kind of goes the lot of message of what we talk about is prepare now. I mean, there even for you, Jim, I mean, there's going to become a time where you say, okay, now is the right time for, for me to train and how to do this one last thing that I'm the only one that knows how to do so that I can go on that four-week vacation. Later this fall of 2021, we'll actually be co-hosting a pretty significant event around business acquisition. How does the Metalworking Nation find out about that? It's with a partner that, that's well-known in the industry. It will ultimately be on our website and theirs, but yeah, there'll be enough marking behind it that pretty much anyone in the machine shop business will see the event. Machine shops make money by making chips. The more chips they make, the more money they're going to make. And if you're not making chips, you're not making money. Bam. Bam. Thanks for listening to the Making Chips podcast. Jim and Jason knew that the metalworking nation, the community of world-class makers, needed to commit to a new way of leading to stay ahead of the competition. So Making Chips was created to fill that void, to give you advice from other manufacturing leaders who can push you to take action. Your manufacturing challenges have a solution, and many of them are at makingchips.com.